0: to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're going against the grain for the next two hours, as usual, and we have a lot to talk about. Boy, do we. We do today. And really, poor Donald Trump. Yeah. Honestly, trying to overshadow Mike Pence and his book release only to get overshadowed himself by everyone going, no, World War Three, we don't want it. That's Please right. let it not that be the case. Is right. Yeah. Uh, the good news is that nobody seems to want to let this uh, missile incident from yesterday get out of control. Uh, Nobi, maybe with the exception of a, a few, a few I, bloodthirsty people in I, Poland. I was
1: pleasantly surprised by the measured responses until yes. the facts came in. That was great.
0: Yeah, and the assessment now uh, seems to be that the missile that landed in Poland was probably part of a Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile, and that everything still needs uh, investigation. But that, you know, nobody is saying this is this is an attack. Yes. uh, Except, you know, for for Ukraine sort of suggesting uh, suggesting that maybe this is the reason we
1: people get more involved in this conflict. And it's funny, too. The Russian defense minister almost immediately after this happened said that he had looked at still photos of the uh, the site where the missile came down. And he said, this is not a Russian missile. Yeah. And everybody dismissed him Which, at first. And yeah. it wasn't a Russian missile.
0: Well, because nobody's listening to anything that right. Russia says, right? right? But as soon as you began to get these West Western assessments mm-hmm. saying, yeah, mm-hmm. this doesn't seem possible. This is, it's probably, it probably came from Ukraine and in either case was an accident. Yeah, we got to hear that. Uh, I also thought a, a, an unfortunate accident everyone is still looking into is sort of a metaphor you could stretch to include all of Donald Trump's presidential campaigns. <laughs> Another one of which we are about to experience, and I, for one, am not excited about it. It feels very tedious this time around, John.
1: I, I texted you last night saying that having to listen to Donald Trump again made me want to cut my wrists. Yeah,
0: don't, and don't do that. I know. So much time.
1: It, it's just, you know, the, the inflection in his voice, which has always driven me crazy, mm-hmm. and the lie after exaggeration after lie after exaggeration. It was just too much to take. I was surprised, ple- pleasantly so, that even Fox News, I decided to watch the announcement on Fox News just to see what they were having to say about mm. it. Even Fox News cut out at the halfway mark. Yeah. It was just too much even for them. None of the broadcast networks even bothered to cover it.
0: Yeah. So. Low energy Trump is not going to be as fun as Trump the first
1: time. No, around. you're absolutely right.
0: We'll see where this goes, though. I mean, I think you still you still can't rule him out. And I do owe you a dollar because I was <laughs> hoping against hope that it would just be him throwing himself a party.
1: I was hoping he would also announce that Marjorie Taylor Greene was going to be his running mate.
0: Well, then we'll call it even. John. Sure. We'll call it even. We are going to talk about these two stories. Of course, we are also going to get into a new report on covid reinfections and ask how concerned we should be. That this disease is still circulating merrily among us and nobody wants to talk about it, Mm -hmm. which is great if there's nothing to be talked about. But if it is as bad as this report indicates, and maybe there should be a little bit more guidance even in this late stage of the pandemic. Uh, we are going to ask whether we should applaud huge purchases of American timberland for carbon capture. Uh, I'm hoping we will have time to get into the impact of the U.S. border wall with Mexico on wildlife. We we will see about that. Uh, but we're going to start off where we started yesterday, which is, of course, in Bali with the the G20 meeting that got interrupted as everyone had to scramble and talk about this, uh, you know, this potential, yes. the, the, this whatever it was that fell into a village in Poland. Um, but. They did manage to come to a final statement at this uh, G20 meeting, which is something that some people had thought might not be possible. And I've seen a lot of reporting on the final joint statement, uh, but I could not find the text this morning anywhere. Uh, I can see that it is a 17-page document that includes the observation that most members strongly condemned the war in Ukraine, but there were other views as well, and that it talks about climate change, food security, and pandemic recovery. Um, I'm also seeing reporting that India did a lot of the final finessing of language. And, and so I'm going to ask if, if our correspondent there in Bali has seen any, anything of this final text and, and how significant it actually is. We're joined now by Sputnik Radio Bureau Chief in Washington, Mindya Gavishele. Mindia, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So talk to us about this final statement. As I said, there was some speculation that maybe they wouldn't even be able to agree on enough things to put out a joint declaration. But it seems like they have. Well, you know, what of this is notable?
2: There's a slight nuance because normally G20 summits produce a joint communique. This time around, they were not able to do so, which means that they were not able, basically, to agree on some
3: big deals,
2: but they produced a joint declaration of the leaders. Which means that in this declaration, they're saying that there was disagreement between the Members of G20 about the war in Ukraine and who is responsible for that, and that they admit themselves, G20 is not the place where conflicts like this need to be solved or could be solved. So basically, that was that was the formula that everyone agreed to, and the US, UK, uh, the European Union. All joined in condemning Russia, while other countries like China, India, um, Brazil, Saudi Arabia refused to do so. So uh, that was the 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 dispute. I mean, yeah, that was the perhaps the main intrigue, intrigue, and the main contention point uh, during the summit. So both sides had eventually to. Give up something and a compromise
1: on things. Yeah. Mindy, I want to ask you about a meeting that took place on the sidelines of the summit uh, uh, early today. It was between President Biden and Turkish President Erdogan. This was an unannounced meeting on the margins. The readout in the U.S. press really doesn't tell us anything. It says that Biden said that the U.S. stands with Turkey against terrorism, that he expressed thanks to Erdogan for Turkey's role in the Black Sea grain shipments. But relations with Turkey are in a very bad state right now. And I I was curious why you think Biden didn't mention this statement uh, earlier this week by the Turkish interior minister who blamed the United States for a terrorist attack in in, uh, Istanbul. And... Besides that, the Greek press today is saying how thrilled they were with this meeting between Biden and Erdogan because they believe it it makes Greece safer from Turkish threats. But if you read the U.S. press, there's no indication that that Biden brought it brought up Greece or anything having to do with the GN security. What's your readout on this?
3: Uh, I
2: know that Biden personally delivered his condolences to Erdogan after the Turkish Interior Minister refused to accept condolences from the U.S. ambassador to Ankara. So uh, Biden had to personally meet with Erdogan and uh, say how sorry the U.S. is for what happened in Istanbul. Uh, And moreover, they were obviously speaking about the grain deal which Turkey sponsored between Ukraine and Russia, and how they are hoping that this deal will be extended and both countries will be able to import or export, rather, uh, wheat to those countries in the world who really need it, especially in the developing world. Uh, also today, Erdogan made some news because Uh, After what happened in Poland, obviously Biden was woken up at 3 a.m. in the morning and there is even a photo circulating uh, of him sitting with Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, and Anthony Anthony Blinken, his secretary of state, working in the middle of the night uh, calling other leaders. And uh, G20 was absolutely interrupted by what happened in Poland. And in the middle of the G20 summit, Joe Biden decided that he'd together seven leaders to hold a separate summit with uh-huh. them. Uh, and also they were consulting with the NATO leaders and Erdogan obviously is one of them. So after those consultations, Erdogan came out and told journalists, Biden personally told us, that it was the Ukrainian S-300 missile that hit Poland, and there are no indications that uh, Russia had anything to do with it. And um, even though Biden was more cautious when he was speaking with the journalist, he said that as of now, it seems like it was a Ukrainian missile. But when Erdogan came out, he said it absolutely definitively. And later on in Warsaw, President uh, the Polish president came out and also confirmed that all data indicates that it was a Ukrainian S-300 missile and uh, it wasn't Russia who launched it into the Polish territory.
1: Yeah, that makes, that makes more sense to me. Is there any indication... At all that Biden is going to meet with other world leaders once the summit is well, the summit is has concluded. Is there any plan to meet with anybody else before he begins his return to the United States?
2: No, absolutely not. And he even cut it a little short because he didn't come uh, to the. Gala today, which was concluding the summit. The official version is that since there was a scare about the Cambodian prime minister testing positive uh, on COVID, Biden didn't want to take the risk and be present at the gathering just to just in case someone contracts COVID. Uh, But we need to remember that it was a rough night for him. Like I said, he was. And wake since 3 a.m. So perhaps he will felt kind. Plus, I can confess I'm much younger than Biden, but the jet lag is killing me too. So, you know, uh, I'm sympathetic
4: to be
1: honest. <laughs> you know, there was a book that came out in the 1980s uh, written by a White House aide called Should We Wake the President? And it was based on the US bombing of Libya. We bombed Libya in the middle of the night and nobody bothered to wake Ronald Reagan up and tell him that we had bombed Libya. Uh, And the decision was made to not wake him up because they said, well, what's he going to do? We already bombed them. He's not gonna change anything.
0: Honestly, should we wake the president could be a memoir just about the entire administration of Ronald Reagan at any time of the day, couldn't it? Right. That's I mean, right.
1: Yeah. Mindia Gavishelli, thank you for joining us. Mindia is the Sputniks is is Sputnik News' Washington bureau chief and our boss. He's had a very successful trip out to Bali. We are gonna take a short break. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have a whole lot of news coming up. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriaku, here in the studio with my co host, Michelle Witte. We told you yesterday at the end of the show, and I'm going to blow our horn here a little bit, that there were reports that a rocket, possibly a Russian rocket, had struck a border village in Poland, killing two people there. We cautioned that this was just an initial report and that we, like every other news outlet, were waiting for the facts to come in. The White House, the Polish government, and the NATO leadership were cautious and did not make any major substantive statements at the outset. Now, the West is confirming that this was not a Russian missile. It was a Ukrainian air defense missile that was shot at a Russian missile. It apparently went astray and it detonated in Poland. So while there was initial talk yesterday of invoking NATO's Article 6, which says an attack on one is an attack—or, sorry, thank you, thank you, thank you, Uh, Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all— That will not come to pass. It's a lesson in waiting for the facts to come in before making an official announcement. In other news, multiple outlets are saying this morning that negotiations on the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal are all but dead. Bloomberg quotes U.S. officials as saying that the conflict in Ukraine has pushed the JCPOA off the front burner. Reuters is reporting that Iran's sale of drones to Russia, coupled with the ongoing protests across Iran have killed any chance for a deal. And a spokesman for the National Security Council said yesterday that the JCPOA is, quote, not on the Biden administration's agenda, unquote. That's pretty clear. Meanwhile, excuse me. Meanwhile, President Biden yesterday met, as we said a moment ago, with Turkish President Erdogan on the sidelines of the G20 summit. The readout was all flowers and light. There's no indication that Biden complained to Erdogan about a statement earlier this week by the Turkish interior minister saying that the U.S. was responsible for a terrorist attack in central Istanbul that killed six people and wounded 81 people. We're joined today by our friend, Dr. David Walalu, international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the host of Geopolitics in Conflict. That's a show on YouTube not on the Young Turks. His latest book is The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking the Global Order. David, always great to have you. Welcome back.
4: Good to be with you, John. and
1: Michelle. David, let's begin with the missile explosion along the Ukrainian border with Poland. When this initially happened, it looked like it could be a very big problem. Had it been Russian, NATO would have had to respond in some fashion. The Russian defense minister came out almost immediately and said, this is not a Russian missile. That turned out to be true. Had this played out in a different way, there would have likely been some sort of NATO action. What do you think that NATO action would look like? What what does the NATO charter call for in a case like this? And I know this is a hypothetical question, but what kind of response would you have expected?
4: Well, and the possibility of it, of course, enacting Article 5 uh, of the Charter for NATO, most likely you will see more deployments of troops to the border, along with some either medium range or short range missiles. I do not, I would not expect NATO to engage in a a firepower with Russia. Yeah, mistakes happen, but this is why so many were quick to jump. Uh, the guns are saying, well, it was a Russian launch. Well, no, hold on a second. Wait a minute. Ukraine tends to do this kind of activities before. We've seen it during the last couple of months. I'm sure your listeners are aware of when the Ukrainian government attacked the uh, nursing homes. Right. A couple of months ago. Or when the U.S.
1: accidentally Russia. attacked the Chinese embassy in Belgrade back in the 90s. That's the way. Indeed, You know, indeed. these kinds so, of, of mistakes happen sometimes.
0: Accidentally blew up an aid worker and a bunch of uh, civilians and children in Afghanistan That's a right. year ago. Yep.
1: That is exactly right. Yeah,
4: this happens. But the case of hypothetically had it been Russia, which usually, you know, common sense would suggest Russians knows how things work. They're not going to engage in something like this. Why trigger a uh, conflict even further? But hypothetically, yeah, Russia, uh, NATO rather, will allocate more troops to the border. And as I said earlier, the way I see it, it will be like a medium to short-range missiles. That would be it. There is nothing else NATO can do, believe it or not.
1: That, that's exactly say, the response I was yeah, looking for. They're
4: going to attack Russia. No, they can't because they know. NATO knows what the consequences will be because Russia has its own missiles. As I disclosed in my book, that those missiles that Russia has on Kaliningrad those will be within reach to every capital in the Western world, especially mm-hmm. in Europe. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to risk it for that. No. So, what they're going to do? They're going to show some partial of course, by mobilizing more troops, of course, and some hardware just to show, yeah, we can stand up to the Russians. Of but they won't go any further than that.
1: NATO defense ministers are meeting today in Brussels. Actually, I think the meeting is probably just ending right now. This was a previously scheduled meeting and is not in response to what happened in Poland. Is this simply a coordination meeting on the conflict in Ukraine, or is there more to it?
4: No, there is not much. This is nothing but, (laughs) as I always say, a window dressing, shall we say. The purpose of the meeting, and this is my opinion, the purpose of the meeting is to show unity per se. Because uh-huh. what you are witnessing right now in Europe, and I do have family members live in Europe, and I call and I talk. What you are, which we don't hear, by the way, about it here in the West, is the massive amount of demonstrations that's taking place. From Italy and Paris, from Rome and Paris, to Berlin, to England, to you name it. So, what we are seeing, and, and, and the interesting aspect of all this, John, is that some of those demonstrations are now asking to, for their countries to stop the support for Ukraine or sending weapons. They became now anti NATO protests. And this is why the meeting also, it's, an, and it's a, some sort of an opportunity for NATO to say, no, 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 we are still united fronts and all that. When you know, you and I know, that the cracks are starting to expand within
1: Europe. That's certainly how it looks. And I wanted to ask you for a minute about Iran. Uh, The JCPOA is dead, which shouldn't surprise anybody. We've talked about it a lot over the last year or two. My own personal belief is that Donald Trump should never have pulled out of the JCPOA. It was working. It was verifiable. But now we find that the JCPOA essentially has been overtaken by events. Iran has been selling drones and weapons to Russia. The West, of course, objects to that. And Tehran is dealing with something that's turning into a nationwide uprising. First, assuming that the JCPOA is indeed dead, where does the Iranian nuclear program go from here?
4: Well, that's an interesting question. And, and as one who wrote a book about Iran, especially after the uh, the the, uh, the agreement between the P5 and uh, P5 plus one, Germany and Iran regarding the Iran's nuclear program. Uh, it's kind of the moment they start talking about this a few months ago, a few years ago, I said, ain't gonna work. JCPOA is dead. Yeah, because why? We shouldn't pull out of the deal to begin with. You know, what do you expect? Iran's gonna just say, yeah, you can just impose whatever you want. They are not going back to it now anytime soon. And as a matter of fact, they are not. In my assessment, That GCP is over. And what Iran is going to end up doing is they're going to have to coordinate now their efforts with Russia to build some nuclear power plants inside Iran. And there is a conversation going on right now between Iran and China regarding some nuclear technology as well. I'm not talking about the transfer of the nuclear weapon technology. That is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the beginning of the establishment of nuclear power plants that are being supported by Russia and China. What led me to this is the recent development that's taking place, especially when it comes down to the the trio, Russia, China, and Iran, because they are now coordinating their efforts on both sides, on the strategic side, the geopolitical areas, And also on the energy aspects of it.
1: That makes perfect sense. That's what led me
4: to believe. Yeah, that's what led me to believe Uh, to Iranians now, it doesn't matter. Let's move on with whatever we need
1: to do. I think you're right. We mentioned last week that demonstrations in Iran seem to be growing. Uh, This began in response to the death in police custody of Mahsa Amini, who was arrested for having her hair exposed. But now young people are openly challenging the government there. There reportedly have been several hundred deaths of demonstrators and thousands of arrests. The government has been clear that it's willing to crack down. But what we haven't seen is the Supreme Leader calling out the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps or the IRGC. Is that the next step? Or can the government deal with these demonstrations without going that far? And let me add one other thing. There was an announcement from the Iranian government this morning saying that A court in Tehran had sentenced three demonstrators to death today. Uh, That brings the number of death sentences to five so far. Should we expect to see more of that?
4: You won't see more of the, the sentencing to death, basically, because if they keep going that way, that means the demonstrations will only get bolder. So... Iranian government will have to think in terms of, okay, now we've, you know, you have about 300, at least in my own uh, stats that I checked out, uh, there are about 342 people that have been killed
3: so far, and
4: 15,000 people have been arrested. Yeah, that's the numbers that I found. But for the Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, he's going to be thinking in terms of, okay, this at some point is going to have to end, because this cannot be going on forever. We've seen this before. We've seen this scenario before by which the decision was, was made at the highest level, deploy the IRGC, and shut it down once for all, regardless what the rest of the world says. So and this is where I see it going. How long will it take? My, my suspicion is by the end of the month. You should, have, uh, you should start seeing uh, where this is going to be headed. But this demonstration is be going on forever.
1: If the IRGC is called out, what do you think that would look like? We're already seeing allegations on Twitter and among Iranian opposition groups that the government is prepared to execute 15,000 people. I think they've just made up those numbers. There's nothing to indicate that that's anywhere even vaguely near the truth. But uh, what do you think the IRGC in the streets of these major cities would look like?
4: Yeah, well, the execution of 15,000, yeah, I don't see that either. That sometimes is just uh, analy- yeah. analyzing the, and, you know, just how it is the opposition. Also. Basically, what the IRGC is going to be giving the order, you have to clamp down on this. So, in, in my opinion, it will be sort of, you know, telling the democrat you have two options. Either you go home or we're going to come after you. That's the, the bottom line to it is going to be. Which means coming after you, I'm talking about using deadly force. Right. This is what they're gonna. And the moment you start seeing, you know, people dropping in on the street, demonstrations. D- d- do you know what the outcome is? So uh, the demonstrators, that are right now, protesters that is in the street, understands the dynamics. What what they are surprised at right now is not seeing IRGC being deployed yet. That's what's surprising them. Oh yeah. And giving them more power to do whatever they are doing as demonstration. But the moment the Supreme Ali Khamenei will give the order, yeah, that, that, that's going to end in no time. That's the way I see it.
1: There has to be a tipping point where where the demonstrations either end, they peter out, or the government cracks down. We're seeing some strong statements coming out of the government, but we're not seeing what that tipping point might be. What kind of timeline do you think we're looking at in Iran? How long do you think these demonstrations can go on? Or more importantly, how long do you think they can continue to grow before Khamenei finally calls out the IRGC?
4: Well, the tipping point, first of all, John, it will be, should be ever called for regime change from within, then that will be the end of it. because. Uh, even, even you know, as one who's been following what's going on in Iran for quite some time, uh, government can tolerate to a degree. But the moment you reach the highest establishment, then that will be it. That right. report will be used because they don't care what the rest of the world thinks. You know, Iran has been under sanctions for over three decades, almost four now. You know what will they care about what the West think about you know human rights abuses yeah. and so forth? No, 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 no. It's not going to work that way. So the tipping point, if that's going to be coming out, the call. This is not about just holding the uh, the uh, law enforcement uh, uh, accountable and so forth. If they start calling for the regime change, then that's where you're gonna. That's the tipping point of it. As to how long will it take? That depends again. I'm giving it till the end of the the month just to see where things progress so far. Now, could it be that the the uh, judicial, uh, judiciary, rather uh, by sentencing three more people, send a, a strong message? Possibly, possibly not. But the moment you start seeing them uh, on images of TV, uh, screen TVs and so forth that they've been hanged, yeah, that would be... Uh, that's different. That, to me, would be the point.
1: David... Uh... We mentioned this a few minutes ago uh, in our conversation with our bureau chief, Mindya Gavachelli. President Biden met with Turkish President Erdogan today on the sidelines of the G20. U.S.-Turkish relations are not good right now, to say the least, but Biden apparently didn't make any real complaints. Why do you think that is? Erdogan is facing an election next June, and he's using the U.S. as a whipping boy to rally support. Do you think that's going to work for him domestically? And do you think the U.S. will respond in any way?
4: No, it won't, because the U.S. is not in a position to put this kind of pressure on Turkey. And the reason being because Turkey is the key to whether Sweden and Finland will be admitted to NATO or not. The U.S. wants uh, these two Nordic uh, states to be admitted. And this is why it doesn't want to rock the boat, shall we say. But also, there is another issue that what's going on with the bombing that just took place in Istanbul, it's because Turkey now accusing the u s. of right. supporting the Kurdish separatists. so the u s think about it in terms of, okay, is it worth for us to stay quiet and let it pass, or do we have to rebel feather with the with the Turkish? So anti they decided on the former. So they didn't want to say anything about it. It is another thing that uh, your listeners need to know is that despite whatever, the Turkish president did press Biden on the F-16 transactions, yes, <laughs> which was not reported in, uh, uh, in, in, in Western media. It's because it's still holding to that deal that the U.S. will have to abide by. And so the U.S. find it like it's not a convenient for it at this time to bring any other issue that might kind of uh, aggravate Erdogan and so forth. And you are right, given the upcoming elections and
1: so forth. You know, that's an important point that you make right there, too. The Turks were initially supposed to receive F-35s from us. Uh And then Uh when they bought the S-400 system from the Russians, the punishment was that we wouldn't give the Turks the training necessary to fly the F-35s. Well, without the training, you can't fly the plane. and without training, you can't take receipt of the plane. And so we never sent them the F-35s. In the meantime, the Greeks got the F-35s and the training. So the Turks came back and said, well, at least give us the F-16s. They're old, right? And the Turks already know how to fly the F-16s. We said, fine, we'll give you the F-16s. But Representative Chris Pappas A Greek-American Democrat. Oh, no,
0: we have to take (laughs) F-16s over F-35s. Oh, don't give us a plane that can actually fly. But but what he did, (laughs) what
1: Chris Pappas did was he pushed an amendment through Congress that the Turks had to say in writing that they wouldn't use the F-16s to attack Greece. And the Turks are like, we're not going to sign that because they may attack Greece. And so they don't get any F-16s now either. So relations between the U.S. and Turkey right now are very rocky.
0: I mean, can you think off the top of your head, what are, what are some other NATO members that might attack
1: each other, realistically yeah, none, speaking? I none. mean, that is what is, so,
0: <laughs> this is so wild about Turkey's role right now.
1: It is. But, you know, the problem is, and David can confirm this, when the NATO charter was drawn up back in, what was it, 1947? 47. Um, there was no provision put in for throwing a country out of NATO. Nobody ever envisioned that it would be necessary. Yeah. So we've got some problems on our hands. David, thank you so much for joining us. We were very happy to have our friend, Dr. David Walalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst here in Washington, D.C. He's also the host of Geopolitics in Conflict. That's on YouTube. And his latest book is called The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics remaking of the global order. You're listening to political misfits on radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll take a short break and come right back.
0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I am here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking about land. We're talking about forest land in the United States. We're talking about uh, desert lands and desert ecosystems. Uh, We're talking about who, who is buying this and who's putting stuff on it and what is the impact. Joining us for these conversations is Max Wilbert. He's an organizer, writer, and wilderness guide and the author of the book, Bright Green Lies, how the environmental movement lost its way and what we can do about it. Thanks for being here, uh, Max.
5: Thank you, Michelle. I'm glad to be with you.
0: So we got two sort of different conversations today, but I think both of them are important. Uh, We'll start with forests. At the beginning of this month, we learned that a Wall Street consortium led by a T. Rowe Price subsidiary had made one of the largest timberland purchases in the United States in years for the purpose of selling carbon offsets from that forest. So this entity, Oak Hill Advisors, spent 1.8 billion on 1.7 million acres of forest spreading across 17 Eastern states. It will be overseen by a unit of the environmental markets firm, A New Climate LLC. A New Climate says it is among the 10 largest U.S. timberland owners now, and the only one focused on carbon markets. And because it's focused on carbon markets, uh, what it is going to do with this timberland is maximize how much carbon is stored in the trees instead of logging the trees. Uh, the Wall Street Journal paints this ac- acquisition in a pretty rosy light. Uh, it notes that the way a new manages the forest will promote its growth and the growth of its underbrush, right? Not just its most valuable trees, but uh, carbon offsets. To me, are still uh, you know kind of a dicey proposition. This is a pretty opaque market. It is still ultimately geared toward profit, and all of these things concern me. And so, I wanted to ask about what it what it means for Wall Street investors to have a new reason to buy up Timberland, and also you know if carbon capture is really a way to preserve forests.
5: Well, I'm skeptical too. Um, let me say a good thing before I dive into my skepticism. Great, which is that if Something like this ends up protecting forests and results in, you know, greater biodiversity, older, healthier forests, then I think that's a good thing. And I'm actually aware of some grassroots environmentalists who I I know who are really radical, you know, really want to see what's best for the planet, who have put some effort into schemes like this simply because they see it as a way to leverage the existing bad situation that we're in, politically, economically, and so on, to to actually protect forests. With that said, I'm pretty skeptical about uh, projects like this for a lot of different reasons. Uh, It's really a laundry list of issues. You know, one, you have the problems of fraudulent accounting. Uh, We've seen that uh, pretty widely in the um, so-called responsible... Invest investment arena of the economy, where, you know, you look at a lot of these so-called socially responsible index funds, and they contain mining companies and computer chip manufacturers and logging companies and even tar sands, uh, oil extraction companies, in these index funds that are supposed to be, quote-unquote, sustainable and are being advertised and marketed to people in that way. So, obviously, that's complete greenwashing. So... You know, one way this could play out in this situation is that uh, logging companies have long claimed that young forests grow more vigorously and absorb more carbon than older forests. And so, cutting down older forests to make way for the young ones will actually be better for the climate in the long term. Mm. That's actually completely wrong if you look at the peer reviewed science. Um, forests grow faster in terms of volume and carbon that they sequester as they get older, not slower, um, generally speaking. And uh, and, and it just accelerates over time, in fact, as they get older. So the best forests for carbon sequestration are the oldest. Then you've got problems around uh, monoculture. We're seeing uh, forest planting schemes around the world often, you know, for the sake of carbon offsets and, uh, you know, money-making schemes. Which are planting non-native trees in monoculture plantations which are totally ecologically uh, out of place mm-hmm. you know they don't provide meaningful habitat for wildlife um, it may be pretty much a dead zone for wildlife in fact um, and and that's a big issue so those are just a, a few of the problems that I'm concerned about in a case like this.
0: I remember a couple months back, there was some interesting research, I think, out of India on, uh, yeah, the efficacy of forest planting. And it found that it was uh, not, I think it was not only not positive in terms of biodiversity, but actually negative. Like it did not do, you can't just plant a bunch of trees in an area and and call it a forest and call it an ecosystem. I agree. I think there is something to be said for There's something to be said for even delaying tactics when you are talking about uh, environmental conservation and preservation, right? Like at least if this is protecting the forest from being cut down now and for the next 10 years, then you have 10 more years to find another uh, method or another lever. But I agree. these, these socially responsible uh, investments or whatever, I mean, it seems like a lot of them are just taking at face value promises made by, uh, you know, these, these big fossil fuel companies that we know have lied about these very things in the past, right? So I don't know why we should believe that Exxon's new uh, green initiative is what it says it is and and should qualify for being included on one of these green lists. I, I, I think that that is just absurd. Um, I wanted to ask what what is the state of U.S. forests anyway? Right? I mean, we we live in an area of the country with a lot of trees over here on the East Coast, especially in Washington D.C. Uh, we do, you know, we are lucky enough to live in a a relatively uh, not densely populated country. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I wonder what the state of our forest land is.
5: It's it's generally not good. Uh, I live on the other side of the country in Oregon. I was just out over the last few days in the coast range of Oregon, which is where a lot of industrial forestry takes place, and I walked clear cuts that were thousands of acres over the last few days that stretch over an entire mountainside over the summit of the mountain and down into the next watershed. Um, you know we saw uh, three salmon spawning in the local creek three wow. um, there's a there's a direct compare a direct link between the felling of the forest and the fact that the salmon are, are going extinct—they're really struggling. Um, uh, uh, you know, there there has been, <laughs> excuse me, there have been some significant gains in forest policy in this country over the decades. Um, you know, especially with the 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 Northwest Forest Plan, it, it it was better than what came before uh, in some ways. Um, but we're still seeing these significant. Clear cut, you know, one in my area being proposed a flat country timber sale, um, would cut all this old growth and mature forest um, for, uh, for lumber. The problem is that it, this is still happening across the country. You've got uh, industrial logging taking place in many regions. The northeast is actually one of the regions where there's the least industrial logging in the country. Uh, the southeast is being incredibly heavily logged in fact it's being logged at a rate about three to four times as fast as the amazon rainforest Um, and this is some of the most biodiverse habitat in uh, on the continent Um, in places like georgia where you have uh, huge industrial forestry plantations which are being uh, chopped down and and uh, ground into pellets uh, some of which are shipped across the ocean to europe and burn in power plants and called the sustainable carbon neutral fuel. So uh, greenwashing is endemic in the industry. The uh, timber industry, the logging industry here in the Pacific Northwest is trying to brand itself as a source of sustainable building materials. You know, that may be true when you're taking down a tree here and there to build local places for people to live, but uh, it's certainly not true when you're cutting down uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. You know, there's there's about one to two percent of the old growth forests that originally grew in this country uh, remaining at this point, and that number is falling. They're still being cut.
0: What do you make of carbon offsets, just as a as a scheme, right? As a as as a way to mitigate climate change?
5: Well, I think it's a at best, it's a delaying measure. Like you say, um, the data is pretty clear that. Uh, Uh, There's not enough land in the world to plant enough trees to really offset the full effects of global warming. We're seeing these issues with non-native tree species being grown in habitats where they don't naturally live, and also trees being grown in places where they wouldn't naturally grow. Um, That's called uh, afforestation rather than reforestation. It's when you plant trees in a place where trees shouldn't be in the first place. Um, and that's horrible for biodiversity as well, and can also cause issues with water tables and watersheds and so on. So, uh, you know, I think it can be a delaying tactic in some circumstances. Um, you know, I think if uh, wealthy people can be convinced to use some of their money to protect uh, forests and allow them to mature and allow them to grow naturally, if those are if those are native forests. Um, that would actually otherwise be logged, that's the other thing about this, is that in many cases, these forest carbon offsets are uh, being used fraudulently to, quote-unquote, protect forests that weren't actually at risk in the first place. And, you know, it's just sort of, this is like accounting that would make Enron jealous, right? It's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, and this is uh, absolutely right in the industry.
0: Let's also talk about the uh, the border, in particular, the border with areas uh, between Arizona and Mexico. Uh, former President Donald Trump, who we just learned is running again, promised to build a big, beautiful wall along our border with Mexico and uh, and managed to build about 450 miles of it during his administration. About half of that was in Arizona. Uh, This is according to U.S. News. And now Arizona Governor Doug Ducey has taken it upon himself to fill in the gaps by plonking down shipping containers along the parts of the border where there is no wall, which he is doing against the will of the federal government, which did not only not give permission for the action, but actually late last month called on Arizona to stop saying you're trespassing on federal land, you're trespassing on national park land, and you're also uh, putting these shipping containers down on reservation land that you don't have the authority to alter. Last month, the Bureau of Reclamation requested that the governor remove the containers uh, from, as you know, what I can see. Arizona has just ignored these requests. Um, Arizona says it is building this wall with the stated purpose of blocking human migration, but uh, reporting in High Country News says the placement of a lot of these containers, particularly in the 5,000-acre Coronado National Memorial, uh, there's very little human traffic, but a lot of wildlife crossing. Uh, Sky Island Network, with, which operates cameras that document wildlife along the border, uh, says, you know, we th- this is not a place where humans cross, but this is really important for jaguars, for ocelots, for Mexican gray wolves, uh, for dozens of endangered and threatened species. Lots of species migrate along these areas, and they won't necessarily find what gaps there are in the formal built wall. Uh, let alone these shipping containers, which which don't seem to consider wildlife at all. Uh, And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about both what what Trump's wall has done to um, the habitat there and animal migration and what Ducey's makeshift border is doing.
5: Well, I I think, uh, you know, the impacts on wildlife of this kind of thing are they are broad and uh, they're they're really a problem. I mean, habitat connectivity is everything. I mean, this is literally like if you were going about your life and somebody built a wall maybe between your work and your home and mm-hmm. you weren't allowed to go between those two anymore. Or perhaps, you know, even more uh, fittingly, between your bedroom and your kitchen. And now you have no more access to eating areas. You have no more access to water source- sources. Potentially, uh, you know, these animals are being cut off from mating. They're being cut off from genetic connectivity. But, you know, fundamentally, it's just the basic basics of life uh, cannot take place when you can't move around and access different areas, different habitats. So the, the impacts are pretty broad. I think it's really important to put this in context, too, because, uh, you know, the reality is that there are various political and ecological crises taking place uh, in the south of the U.S. border into Central America and South America that are you know, causing people to flee for their lives. And those are, you know, serious crises that I I don't presume to understand fully. But I do know that, you know, in part, there's a a role that's played by the international economy. There's a large role that's played by uh, the functioning of capitalism, by the growth imperative, by endless population growth, by all these different issues, which, you know, are deeply interwoven with our country here, our policies, our own way of life, and so on. And, uh, you know, this is, this is leading uh, thousands, tens of thousands, of millions of people to, to leave their homes in crisis. Um, so I think it's important to just keep that in mind as well, both to have a broader political context, uh, you know, to, to have compassion, uh, you know, for people who are, who are suffering and struggling and to figure out what the heck to do about it, of course. <laughs> um, you know a, a wall mentality I think um, the the only way that I could even remotely imagine supporting something like that uh, some sort of no immigration policy would be if it were paired with some sort of uh, very robust policy for helping people where they live right for helping people fix their issues at home and get stability and get food they need and get well, you know their help and so on but of course this being the United States, you know that, um, you know, you know what United States quote unquote help has looked like for other countries. You know what that looked like in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know what that looked like in Nicaragua and all around the world where, uh, you know, I'm not saying everything this country has ever done in regards to foreign policy is bad and they've never helped anyone. It's not true, but there's been a lot of terrible uh, mistakes made. And actually, you know, uh, huge harms done. I mean, yeah. millions of people's lives destroyed. Um, so yeah. it, it's a very serious issue, and and the impact on the environment is completely going uh, uh, under the radar as, you know, it's really just become this sort of political football where the right and the left are sort of playing out their fight over these issues, and the reality of, of human lives and ecological reality being lost. This
0: is one of the questions that I had. I mean, I don't even remember what uh, environmental impact studies were done for for this proposed wall, right? And if, if they were ever taken seriously, which is a complaint that we, you know, talk about on this show in a lot of different contexts, both, you know, the consultation processes with, uh, with tribes and tribal governments, uh, environmental impact studies. Uh, you know, I, I can't recall what if any uh environmental reporting was done before uh, you know they started to slap this wall up but the other question i had which is sort of sort of related to the issues you you brought up at least in the sense that uh you know actions here have wide ranging repercussions is you know what it means to have a state government going rogue on a on a project like this cuz i've you know i i i've lived in places where you know conservation is kind of done at the at the local level rather than at higher levels and it sort of seems like it it leads you into a mindset where you can think uh, all the tigers are, are all the tigers are in the next village you know and so i it does seem like you can't leave wildlife considerations to lower level government bodies because wildlife doesn't, you know, stay inside these these borders. And so I wanted to talk about, you know, where where, you know, what's the appropriate level for these decisions to be made at?
5: Well, I I mean, generally how these issues play out is that a state is allowed to set stricter standards than the federal uh, standards. But, you know, the Fed sort of set the baseline. You know, Mm -hmm. you can see that in regards to like California's uh, laws around gas mileage, for example, right? They're stricter than the federal laws, but that's allowed. They're not. Uh, they're not sort of preempting federal authority in this case. And I won't pretend to be a legal scholar or something of that nature. But that's generally um, how these things type of uh, uh, work. Um, in a case where a state is is moving forward on a significant project like this without um, authority from the federal government, I I don't know what will happen. I have no idea, actually. What I do know is that under the Trump administration in uh, January of 2018, uh, the, uh, the administration waived a bunch of environmental laws and cultural protection laws in order to begin the construction of the border wall. That includes the National Environmental Policy Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, Historic Preservation Act, Migratory Bird Treaty Act, on and on, the Clean Air Act. All of these laws were completely waived, and um, the government, the federal government, has the ability to do that in situations of of national emergency um, or grave national interest. (laughs) And that's something that we're seeing uh, begin to play out on the climate change front as well. I've been on the show previously speaking about Protect Thacker Pass and the Thacker Pass lithium mine. And that, excuse me, that project was uh, fast-tracked under a Trump administration executive order that, you know, ironically has been sort of, it was rescinded by Biden, but then has been sort of mirrored by Biden with a justification of, of climate change rather than of uh, economic interest for the nation. So we're seeing uh, both administrations, uh, both parties, when it becomes convenient for them want to bypass all of these environmental regulations, all of these protections for culture and history and tribes and so on, and build build, build as fast as they can. Uh, that's what we saw at the border and you know it's what we're seeing increasingly uh, around mining and energy transmission lines and industrial energy projects related to uh, the climate change crisis, which which is very real and serious i I don't think the right way to about solving it is destroying what remaining natural lands and wildlife habitat we do have.
0: Max Wilbert, always appreciate you joining us. Uh, tell our listeners before you go where they can uh, get updated on what is happening at Thacker Pass.
5: Well, thanks, Michelle. I always enjoyed being on the show. And yeah, folks can check out protectthackerpass.org. That's Thacker, T-H-A-C-K-E-R, protectthackerpass.org.
0: That was Max Wilbert. His book is Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. Uh, thanks, as always, for joining us. We got a break coming up here on Political Misfits, but not quite yet. And we didn't get to mention at the start of the show this uh, explosion yes. locally in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Yeah, uh, still don't know. I mean, I think a, a good guess would be a gas pipeline, but who knows? But that I, seems I to be what's behind a lot of inexplicable or, you know, uh, a. Yeah. I guess, unexpected explosions in the U.S. which also feels like a thing that happens too often. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like maybe we need... I mean, a lot of the focus on energy infrastructure ends up in California mm-hmm. because they have these huge wildfires and you can, you know, a, a lot of the time look for a power line that hasn't yes. been upgraded because they happens wanted to pay time. bonuses and making profits instead of actually investing in moving lines underground or making them safe. But I mean... We got an explosion on the East Coast in a gas pipeline, uh, what, every four years or something? I mean, oh, yeah. too and, often.
1: And, you know, it's funny, too, because when these houses just spontaneously explode, we all look at each other and say, uh, gas. Yeah. It was a gas leak. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. That it shouldn't. shouldn't happen. Maybe we
0: should upgrade our infrastructure. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe we should make some investments in
1: that. I'm looking at the Washington Post right yep. now, and they haven't even bothered to report on it.
0: Yeah, and it's it's 25 miles away. Yeah. You know, that's right. 30 miles away at most. Yeah, I'm very familiar with the area. Also, speaking of, uh, well, it, infrastructure, but this is transportation. Did you see that Pete Buttigieg was at the Silver Line opening?
1: I the, did not see that. The D.C. Metro
0: opened saw... a line to uh, a, a local airport. Yeah, the airport's Dulles been there airport. for 60 years. There right. has not been a Metro Line there for 60 years. This is touted as a great accomplishment, although it was Way overdue. I don't know how many years ago oh, it, was yeah, it was supposed to originally to open. years. And the ta- transportation secretary pops up there. Nowhere to be found at those negotiations with rail companies uh, a month or so ago. But that he can pop right. up to cut the ribbon at the at the silver line opening.
1: Unbelievable. Yeah, I there almost are a couple of to, congressmen there, too.
0: I almost wonder if they're trying to insulate. Like, here's a victory. Let's trot out Pete Buttigieg for something we can all be happy about, which is this train line opening. And let's... Uh, Let's sort of insulate him from whatever the fallout from those real negotiations are going to be if they go bad.
1: It says here it took decades to plan. It's a decade late. Um, it cost $3 billion, which is more than $2 billion over budget. It's
0: the Gerald Ford. Yeah, it's the F-35 of Metro line. So I hope it doesn't explode. It <laughs> I hope it can run in the rain, John. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. and going to come back and talk a little bit more about what Donald Trump said <laughs> last night, uh, what Greg Abbott's latest uh, offense against humanity is and some other stories. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
1: to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Donald Trump announced his candidacy for the 2024 presidential nomination at Mar-a-Lago last night, becoming only the fourth former president in American history to try to give it another go. The only successful former president to run for non-consecutive terms and win was Grover Cleveland, who did that about 130 years ago. Trump's announcement speech was riddled with inaccuracies and outright fabrications, but it played to his base where facts aren't terribly important. Before the speech, he was trolled by airplanes flying past Mar-a-Lago promoting Ron DeSantis for president, and today's New York Post, which long supported Trump, has text at the bottom of page one saying simply, Florida man makes announcement, page 26. Initial polls following Trump's announcement show that Republicans are far less excited about him than they were in 2016 and 2020, although he maintains a lead over DeSantis nationally. He's running behind the Florida governor in key states like Iowa, New Hampshire, Florida, and Georgia. Yesterday, we told you that Republican senators would choose a leader in a private vote today, but that minority leader Mitch McConnell was running unopposed. But The Hill and Politico report this morning that there was a knockdown, drag out fight among Republican senators at a private lunch yesterday in which Florida Senator Rick Scott abruptly announced that he would challenge McConnell today. Scott appears to have the support of only four other senators, and the move shows a deep split among Republicans who align more closely with Trump and those who are in the McConnell camp. Do you know how we know this? Because Ted Cruz was screaming so loudly in this lunch that through the closed door, all of the Capitol Hill reporters could hear what he was saying. God That's what the that's what the article was based on. (laughs) And it's not just Republicans who are pointing the finger at each other. Democrats in New York are furious about losing every congressional race on Long Island. And some are saying that if former governor Andrew Cuomo hadn't mucked around with the congressional boundaries the Democrats might still be in control of the House of Representatives. Yeah. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has called on the head of the New York State Democratic Party to resign. And state Democrats are having to lick their wounds before coming up with a new strategy for 2024. And the Senate today is poised to vote on marriage equality, a vote that will permanently enshrine the Supreme Court's Obergfell versus Hodge's decision which legalized same-sex marriages. The House passed the measure in July, and just yesterday, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, long known for their hostility to same-sex relationships, announced their support for the measure. We're joined by Ted Rawl. Ted's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Welcome back, Ted. Thanks for having me, John. Man, Ted, there is so much to say. Let's, let's start with Donald Trump's announcement last night. Um, even Fox News declined to run the whole thing, which was crazy to me. I specifically watched it on Fox News just to see <coughs> excuse me, what they would have to say. Fox and CNN ran the first half and then cut away. And today the reaction from the conservative media is pretty much meh. You know, the cover of the New York Post, as I said, said it all. Florida man makes announcement page 26. What do you think we should take from this? Only Grover Cleveland succeeded in having a second act and Grover Cleveland. I looked this up today, ran unopposed for the democratic nomination in 1892. Wow. What do you think?
6: Well, don't for, don't forget the New York post was also a huge ally of Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. huge. So it's a, it's a, it's a real rebuke. Uh, you know, it's, it's clear that the national powers that be have decided that they gave Donald Trump way too much attention last time, and they feel like they made him, uh, and they were responsible for making him president. So now they're going to do the other extreme. Uh, I two two days two days ago and yesterday morning, I was reading the New York Times and Washington Post and looking online for what time uh, the president trump's uh address uh, announcement was going to be i couldn't even find it uh there was it was it was there was just no coverage they decided to completely freeze him out to treat him like you know john edwards or howard dean or bernie sanders just nope as if he didn't even exist la 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 we can't hear you Uh, the problem for the powers that be is that You know, they kind of have never really understood the appeal of Donald Trump or Trumpism, and they clearly haven't driven across flyover country like I have. Uh, There's lots of Trump flags, lots of hardcore enthusiasm for him inside the GOP. Uh, I would not count him out, and they can try to pretend like he doesn't exist, and he may lose, but... I think it's far from certain that DeSantis is the anointed one. Um, You know, it's one thing to be the king of Florida, which right now he clearly is. But it's another thing to get, uh, you know, nice people in Wisconsin and Michigan to vote for you. Um, I, you know, maybe, maybe that'll happen. But, uh, you know, temperamentally and in terms of charisma, that has yet to be seen.
1: I have to agree. You know, the Democrats farm, I'm sorry, the Republicans rather far more than the Democrats tend to embrace outsiders in their primaries. The rules are different based on party for primary elections. And it's you're much more likely to be a dark horse in the Republican Party and end up with a nomination, as we saw with Donald Trump in 2016, than you would be in the Democratic primaries. I think Ted's right on this. Ted, while while watching the announcement last night, all I could think about was how almost everything out of Donald Trump's mouth was a lie, right? The fact checkers in the media had a field day today. Republican voters and politicians let him get away with that for four years and throughout the 2020 election season. Do you think that'll change? Can we expect the likes of Ron DeSantis and Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence to to call him out on these on these lies and exaggerations?
6: uh you know again we know that that didn't work you know the trump era inaugurated two new phenomena in the media one was the explosion of fact checking uh yeah. reporters yeah. at every organization uh it didn't have any real impact at all and the other was sort of the, of the editorializing within the news stories and within the news headlines you know donald trump uh, repeats lies about uh, election that that he that he won the election. Um, none. I just don't think these things work. If anything, I think they feed into Trump's narrative that he is beleaguered, insulted, that the media is out to get him. I mean, the media is out to get him Uh, and he's and and it's sort of, uh, you know, he's at his strongest and at his best when he's fighting, when he's when he sees himself as aggrieved, which is, you know, a a sentiment that is hugely popular within the GOP. And just, you know, going back just, uh, you know, half a step to the last part of the conversation, I want to point out that a lot of this has to do with arithmetic. Um, You know, Donald Trump had 30 percent of the uh, of the of the Republican primary vote when he first declared in two thousand fifteen and that meant he was going to be the nominee because he was going up against a crowded field that was going to have to compete yeah. for the remaining seventy percent right well he's got forty percent of the GOP vote now, so unless every uh, every uh, you know p- prospect like Nikki Haley and Ted Cruz and uh, Mario uh, you know Marco Rubio and all these other people yeah. decide to stand by and and back and back to Santas or someone else uh, you know it still
1: trumps to win because by plurality. That's a good point. That's a good point. And you know we haven't seen a convention either a Democratic convention or a Republican convention go to secondary ballots. I'm going to say in at least a hundred years.
0: Yeah, I mean, are they going to be able to pull out someone to do the phone call that obviously happened with, uh, with you know Buttigieg, right? Uh, in the last Democratic primary, is there somebody who's going to be able to herd those cats in that party? And that's right. maybe less, less likely than the Democrats being able to do it.
1: I think that's right.
0: They're a more. Uh, they're better soldiers.
1: Our um, intrepid uh, producer, Ben, has just texted us to say that Mitch McConnell was just reelected as the Senate majority leader. Um, That was a I'm going to ask you I'll ask you about that in a minute. But one more Trump question, an editorial in the Hill newspaper today, which is a conservative outlet called Trump's speech a funeral dirge. That's pretty harsh. But then you look at The Wall Street Journal and they said essentially the same thing that there was no energy coming from Trump. Uh, Jeb Bush today on Twitter called him low energy Trump. Um, but is is it what we should expect to see going forward? Are we at a point where the conservative media is finally saying that the emperor has no clothes? We know that the that all of the Murdoch outlets have turned against Trump. That's clear. But what about other people? conservative mainstream conservative outlets. Well, I don't know that mainstream conservative outlets are where Trump's
6: base is anymore. Um I feel like uh they're more in uh the uh you know OANs of the world. Right. Uh and that's really kind of um as the party has radicalized uh that's where he's drawing his strength. I watched the speech I thought this was you know there are two kinds of Trump speeches the ad-libs, and the ones that he reads. Uh, this one he read, and you know the ones that are read avoid gaffes and uh, and and particularly obnoxious statements. This one was half read. I think that's why it was more low energy. I think the, the former president was very nervous, and also he didn't have a big uh, crowd in uh you know in a, in a in a in a big stadium to sort of bounce his energy off of. He had uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, Mar-a-Lago paid members. Um, it was a, I think it was probably a poor choice for him psychologically, even though I know it benefits him and his, 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 uh, his personal finances to be able to have these events happen on his properties. Uh, but I, I think it was a bad choice. I you know, Donald Trump is still a feisty dude. If you watch him at his normal rallies, uh, he's, he'll be back to his same old controversial self. And, you know, it might be one of those things where, uh, you know, all of the really ridiculous stuff that he says percolates under the surface. You know, nobody even mentions that he claimed that he had been president for decades he claimed during his speech yesterday. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, that is not true and could not be true. Thanks to the constitution.
1: Ted, I want to, uh, talk about this Republican Senate leadership race, but first I want to read you a short piece from the Hill this morning and get your reaction. Uh, here's what it says. Wednesday morning's leadership election, catching many of his, uh, uh my apologies. I I started in the wrong place. Senate Republicans let their fury and frustration out at one another during a lengthy closed door meeting that revealed the bitter feelings left over from a crushingly disappointing midterm election. And at times, nasty and personal discussion took place at the Senate GOP lunch, where Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Rick Scott of Florida, who have been at odds for months, traded recriminations over who was to blame for the GOP's failure to win back the Senate. The biggest fireworks came after McConnell stood up at one point in the meeting and observed that while he had heard a lot of criticism of his leadership style, no one had yet announced any plan to challenge him for the job as Republican leader. Scott, the chairman of the Senate campaign arm, then interjected to say that he planned to challenge McConnell at Wednesday morning's leadership election, catching many of his Republican colleagues by surprise, according to a Republican source familiar with the conversation in the room. That means another senator. McConnell quickly cut Scott off, telling him to wait his turn to speak. Then things really got heated. McConnell accused Scott of mismanaging his job at the National Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee and of mischaracterizing the record of the Senate Leadership Fund, a super PAC affiliated with McConnell that poured tens of millions of dollars into a slew of key races, according to the source. Scott then heatedly criticized McConnell for not putting out an agenda before the election and keeping his own leadership team in the dark. He said, I've never seen Scott so fired up. This is what the source said. It was very impassioned, very direct confrontation with McConnell that McConnell did not expect. It started off tense and it got very acrimonious. Scott's comment, however, didn't sit well with Senate Republican whip John Thune of South Dakota, who pushed back hard. It got personal as Thune, who defended McConnell, made it clear that he did not appreciate Scott second-guessing whether the rest of the GOP leadership team is fully looped in on strategy. Scott, who predicted last month that Republicans would control between 52 and 55 Senate seats next year, was criticized by McConnell's allies for his fundraising record. Um this is ugly, Ted. It sounds really bitter. Uh we now know that just minutes ago uh Mitch McConnell won. He likely got all but five or six of the votes in the Senate. And because this is a private vote, it's done over lunch uh we're we're not likely to get a definitive count. But there was really no serious challenge from Rick Scott uh, to to Mitch McConnell. I'd love to get your thoughts, Ted, on where the Republican party is going in the Senate. If they're so bitter, if they're so angry at each other uh, over who is to blame for these election losses last week, can they even begin to stand as a unified force against uh, the White House and uh, Joe Biden? You know, it's a funny thing,
6: John. The Republicans actually won this election. And they're tearing each other apart as if they lost. I mean, the Republicans are currently one vote away, one seat away from controlling the House, with many braces still yet to be counted. They are going to win the House. Uh, they did, you know, they didn't pick up the Senate, but failing to win is not a loss. Um, Democrats lost, Republicans won, and there's all these recriminations, and it's it's a strange thing to see. I think uh, the split. Has all between the corporate McConnell wing of the party and the Trump wing of the party that Scott represents um, has been there all along, and uh, it just came out uh, in this post-election post-mortem phase and this struggle for—I guess you can't really call it a struggle for leadership—but just sort of this this evaluation phase of who's to blame, who's going to take credit, and so on. And but let's not forget the split is there the split also is uh and that there's an analogous one in the democratic party between progressives and uh and, and corporate democrats so i think in the end they'll come together and vote you know in a unified way against the democrats uh they it's it's interesting and it's uh you know it's definitely a fun parlor game to watch these <laughs> These personalities go after each other. But in the the politics of it, I think are I suspect are not going to change. It's not like you're going to see the Democrat, the the Republican Party split in two. Yeah,
1: I think you're probably right. Uh, Ted, give us your thoughts on Kevin McCarthy. He became the Republican nominee for speaker of the House yesterday, but he's nowhere near the 218 votes necessary to actually win the thing. If the election were held today, Nancy Pelosi would get more votes. Than Kevin McCarthy, how do you think this plays out? Can he win over the Freedom Caucus, or should we expect to see a compromise candidate as Speaker of the House? Uh,
6: well, that's much more uncertain. But I, you know, I've, I've watched Kevin McCarthy with great interest. I think he is a much more intelligent and uh, and uh, flexible dude who's able to pivot. Uh, uh, he's definitely behind the scenes trying to cut a deal. Uh, to get the votes that he needs uh, to be to become speaker in the uh, new session in January, and um, you know, I wouldn't bet against him. Uh, he seems to be a good horse trader. Uh, he's not obstinate. Um, those are all important traits uh, in a in a in a speaker, more so than outgoing Speaker Pelosi. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. who's more like my way or the highway, right? Um, right,
1: mama bear uh, with I their own with be, their own constituency, with their own Democrats.
6: Exactly. I think, uh, you know, she I think I think McCarthy is letting he knows that he has a divided caucus and he knows that he has he's he's kind of like almost like a like a European style parliamentarian trying to form an alliance here of uh, disparate parties.
1: Ted, I have to ask you what's going on among Democrats in New York state. There's a real fight taking place there. They performed poorly last Tuesday. They're all blaming each other. What's your take on on these election losses in New York and how did the Democrats go about fixing it? Well,
6: Democrats had a weak uh, uh, governor at the top of the ticket. Uh, Kathy Hochul, um, whatever her personal flaws as a candidate, had only been a sitting governor for a year after Cuomo's resignation. Uh, She didn't used that year to make herself well-known throughout the state, particularly not in New York City. Uh, There was kind of a sense that there's kind of no one at the helm. Um, And she, you know, those the few New Yorkers who sort of gotten to pay attention to her weren't particularly excited. And so, um, you know, I think all of those things kind of coalesced to reduced turnout and enthusiasm for the the, the, the state the state uh, assembly and uh and state senate races um there was it was kind of a perfect storm there were there were gerrymandering issues out on long island um mm-hmm. that sort of bit them in the uh, which you alluded to in the opener which uh you know basically boomeranged back and and hurt them so yeah, you know, in a way, it's not Kathy Hochul's fault, but uh, but she could have done better. And uh, you know, who knows? I, right now, it still has yet to be seen. It has been governor for a year, and you know, it's kind of like no one really cares. She's kind of like a, yeah. a a cipher,
1: right? I want to say too before we move on, the New York Times has just reported that McConnell won uh, thirty-seven to ten. Um, I'm unaware of him ever having opposition before. Uh, and there were only five senators who, uh, who publicly said that they would oppose him. So 10 is, is significant. At this point, we want to bring in our colleague Malik Abdul, who was at Mar-a-Lago last night and who witnessed Donald Trump's announcement. Malik is the co-host of Fault Lines, which you can hear every day right here on Radio Sputnik from 7am to 10am. Welcome Malik.
3: Thanks for having me. I, I bring you greetings from eighty-five degree weather, oh. sunny Florida.
1: Uh, you know, and <laughs> as we were starting the show, and and Ted, you're you're farther north than we are. Uh, I mentioned to, uh, to Michelle that the Washington Post is reporting that Buffalo is expecting seven feet of snow tonight. They're calling they're calling it a lake effect catastrophe. Seven feet of snow, Malik. I want to ask you about the mood in the room last night at Mar-a-Lago. The conservative media are calling the speech, as I said earlier, a funeral dirge. The Wall Street Journal today (laughs) called Trump a loser. And CNN and The Washington Post led with stories saying that almost everything out of Trump's mouth was either a lie or an exaggeration. Most interestingly to me, there are a lot of mainstream Republican politicians who are commenting on the fact that Trump appeared to be very low energy, something that he had hurled at Jeb Bush. And uh, now Bush is saying that it's it's low energy Trump. What was it like being in that room among his most ardent supporters?
3: Well, as you can imagine, and I and I wouldn't even say it was his most ardent supporters, I just think it's people who were supportive of Donald Trump. Um, it was a lot of it was a lot of great energy in the room. This crowd was much different than what we've seen in the past because it was much smaller and there were the usual suspects that were around Donald Trump, and even those from the black, those who are black and conservative, um, the usual suspects, the diamond and silk and Candace Owens oh, and right. many of those others, um, Jack, Prozac, you know, Jesse Kelly, none of them were there. Um, so it was a very small intimate It's not the wrong, the right word, but it was a very small, several hundred people there. Um, it wasn't a big event at all, but the energy in the room was obviously, um, supportive of Donald Trump. You may. To the point about it, and it's, it's an interesting dynamic with with hearing people um, in the conservative space talking about how it was low energy. The opposite of that is the Donald Trump that we did have not liked for the past six years. <laughs> yeah. So, <I'm> right, over- <laughs> yeah, it's so such a weird thing to hear people say, "Well, it was low energy," and it it was low energy because for about seventy five percent of the speech. Donald Trump was on teleprompter when he went off script and started talking about, um, you know, the the death penalty for drug dealers, you know, people kind of looked, and maybe about 5% of the people in the room applauded. I mean, it really didn't register in the room, but I think I prefer, Hey, I prefer boring. If I had to choose a boring, low energy, Donald Trump, as opposed to a very combative, aggressive, sometimes
1: offensive Donald Trump, I'll take the boring one any day. Ted, um, Lindsey Graham tweeted this last night. He said, if President Trump continues this tone and delivers this message on a consistent basis, he'll be hard to beat. His speech tonight, contrasting his policies and results against the Biden administration, charts a winning path for him in the primaries and the general election. Coupled with what Malik just told us, what do you think of that?
6: Uh, well, let's not forget Lindsey Graham is a, is an ally of Trump, so yes. he's going to you know obviously say that. Um, you know, uh, I think you kind of need a lot of to have, have several channels uh, as a politician, and in the same way that Hillary Clinton would adapt a southern accent whenever she spoke in southern states. Um, I forgot about that. I think he kind of I, you know I think I think uh, the his base wants and needs that combative. Uh, you know, personality, that's, you know, the entertainment aspect, the WWE, uh, you know, the wrestling Hall, uh, the Hall of Fame member uh, that he is uh, requires that. I mean, I think you you want to see that he can be calm, but you also, you know, he wouldn't see Donald Trump if he didn't go off the reservation. That's why his people love him. I was in Ohio recently and I saw someone selling Trump stickers and uh, and they said finally someone with well, I will say Cajonas but you know the um, the American mm-hmm. <laughs> version and and that's kind of I think his appeal just boiled down it it doesn't it's like missing the point to say that he says things that aren't true or that he's rude crude and socially unacceptable that's kind of the point it's not a bug it's a feature
1: yeah Malik. Um, there was a piece in the New York Post today saying that the the billionaires who have been the most generous to Donald Trump in the past are sitting this race out. Uh, one of them, he's a hedge fund billionaire, uh, was quoted as saying, I'm not giving Donald Trump one effing nickel. Uh, now, these guys have already been pouring money into Ron DeSantis's the gubernatorial campaign. He has $200 million left over from the gubernatorial race that the F- uh, FEC has said that he can spend on a presidential race. So it looks like a lot of major, major Republican donors are lining up behind DeSantis rather than being generous with Trump like they were in the last two cycles. Uh, apparently, they're absence last night at this announcement was noted by Republican insiders. Can you comment on that?
3: Well, I can't, I don't know who the donors themselves were, but I can assure you that that was, it was a lot, and I talked to them, there was a lot of deep pockets in, at Uh Mar-a-Lago yesterday. Um, The energy yesterday in the room, but also the national conversation about Donald Trump reminds me of 2016. As I've said many times before, I was one of those. I was a Democrat in 2016. I voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary. I was a Bush supporter. Donald Trump, I think, was my second or third um, you know, choice. But in 2016, we saw those donors, they came to Donald Trump belatedly. They didn't like Donald Trump. The establishment didn't like Donald Trump. The media didn't like Donald Trump. Democrats didn't like Donald Trump. And everybody, everybody thought that he didn't have a chance to be the, the behemoth of Clinton land. And he ended up winning. So when I say that, I see, it's, I, I'm kind of reminded of 2016, hearing all of these people say, oh, no, I would never support him. Oh, he's terrible. The interesting thing about that to me is that th- those donors and people saying how maybe we should move on, they weren't saying that when Donald Trump was attacking fellow Republican Brian Pence. They weren't saying that most recently when Donald Trump was attacking several Republican Mitch McConnell. They only started saying that when he went after Ron DeSantis. The question, why? Why Ron DeSantis? Ron DeSantis is now the golden boy for the Republican Party. But keep in mind, we've had various iterations of golden boys. In 2016, Jeb Bush, who also prior to Ron DeSantis was the only governor in Florida in, in the re- most recent governor in Florida to win reelection by double digits. Ron DeSantis did that too, but Jeff Bliss was supposed to be the person to beat in 2016. He was anointed in 2016. Right. We had Tim Pollency. Pal- 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 we had Paul Ryan. We've had very, Forgot about we've had, yeah. So we've had this before, um but, you know, people like DeSantis. I'm not a DeSantis person. If I had to vote for a ticket, it would not be Ron DeSantis because I'm not impressed with Ron DeSantis. Um, I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm not attracted to Trump 2.0. So for me, Ron DeSantis is not an an option to to Donald Trump. If I had to choose someone who was an option for, um, to Donald Trump, it would be a Tim Scott or a Nikki Haley. It wouldn't be Trump liked. that's why I just DeSantis is not a person that who really appeals to me but I'm not surprised that he is being presented as a reasonable alternative to Donald Trump I don't think that he has the national um he will have the national profile to be able to best Donald Trump in a Republican primary
1: Ted final thoughts
6: do you agree with that position I 100% agree with Malik on that I you know uh that's what I've thought all along there are Politicians who can scale up from unlikely places, Bill Clinton from Arkansas, Uh, but Mm -hmm. there are uh, and and you know or or for that matter. But then you know Michael Dukakis from Massachusetts could not, right? Right, right. Um, uh, I just Donald Trump is a national figure. Uh, He is beloved in really, I mean, geographically not not demographically, but geographically by most of the country. Um, I just don't see that with this fantasy. I don't even know if people in you know in Wyoming even much know who he is. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean yeah. it's like they've it, it sort of reminds me of when they rolled out Sarah Palin before people sort mm-hmm. of soured sure. on her and they said, Oh, there's this up and coming like very, uh, you know, cool, fun, interesting, yeah, yeah. bubbly governor from Alaska. and Everyone's like, Alaska? And it, but it, she just couldn't scale up because she didn't have the, the national gravitas. It doesn't matter if you have an empty field. It's not an empty field. Uh, the, the press can pretend like Trump doesn't exist, but he does. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Before we go, I want to say, listen to what Fox News just tweeted. It says, it's a story uh, with the headline, GOP mega donors want to move on from three-time loser Trump. Look to back Desantis <laughs> in 2024. The times they are a-changing, is all I can say. Well, I'd like to thank, I'd like to thank Ted Rawl for joining us. Ted is an award-winning political cartoonist, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, I might add. He's a columnist and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he's co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Raw and Scott Stantis. And thank you also to our colleague Malik Abdul, who was in Mar-a-Lago, Mar-a-Lago last night. I do it every time. Every doggone time. Malik is the co-host of Fault Lines right here on Radio Sputnik. You can hear him every day from 7 to 10 a.m. Thank you both for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take another short break and come right back, so stay tuned.
0: To political misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriaku, and we are talking about something that nobody wants to talk about anymore because it's distressing, it's unclear, it either has huge consequences or don't. Well, I guess it either has huge sort of uh, physical consequences or it doesn't. Either way, it has huge political consequences, and of course, talking about COVID. Uh, The reason we're talking about it again is because there was just this study published in Nature Medicine that Mm -hmm. found that getting COVID more than once increases your risks, both in the acute phase of the illness and increases the risks of uh, getting long COVID, right? And so it seems like we should talk about that. Joining us for this conversation is Dr. Monica Gandhi. She's a physician and a professor of medicine at the University of California at San Francisco. She specializes in infectious diseases and global medicine. Dr. Gandhi, thank you for being here. Thank you. So let's talk about this study. This was done by the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and the Veterans Affairs St. Louis Healthcare System. It used the medical records of more than 5 million people in the VA health system. So it appears to be a large study. One of the authors said of the results without ambiguity, our research showed that getting an infection a second, third, or fourth time contributes to additional health risks in the acute phase meaning the first days uh, the first 30 days after infection and in the months beyond meaning the long covid phase the increase in risk appeared regardless of vaccination status and the study also indicated that the risk seems to increase with each infection so if you've had covid once you don't want to get it twice if you've had it twice you don't want to get it third times um and, you know, I want to ask about what limitations there might be to this study uh, in a minute. But generally, how important is this and should it change how we think about COVID?
7: So um, actually, you were going to say that you're going to ask it later. But the, unfortunately, this study does have limitations. Okay. that, um, And it's really not actually consistent with 26 other studies that were reviewed in a meta-analysis of reinfections that show that, in prospective designs, and what prospective designs means is you're looking forward at time you're following people over time, as opposed to what this is called retrospective, that um, people are in a big database, there's kind of electronic medical record codes put in if they have heart disease or strokes or other problems, and you can't show what's called causality, the, the causation between and reinfection and a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. This study is not consistent with 26 other studies that um, were reviewed in a meta-analysis a week before that didn't get that same attention, that usually a second, third, uh, and, and other reinfections are less severe. And to be very clear, how immunology works is we've never seen another virus in kind of the face of infectious diseases where you get worse and worse reinfections. Usually what happens is that an infection creates immunity. It's how we've been able to, you know, sort of uh, succeed as a species is that we are able to develop immune responses to vac- to uh, viruses. And then every reinfection is usually less severe. So I, I actually think this got a lot of attention. Um, and th- 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 to be clear, they actually put in their results, the uh, the um, authors, they wrote, our analysis should not be interpreted as an assessment of severity of a second infection versus that of a first infection, well, that's what nor it should they like. interpret <laughs> interpreted as examination of the risks of adverse health outcomes after a second infection compared to risks incurred after a first infection. So they were careful. You're right that the The study was, was interestingly posed because some places in the paper said, this is scary. And then some, and then there was a very clear caveat in the discussion. And then one other thing I want to say about it, mild reinfections are not often captured in a database like this. So Mm -hmm. what that means is if you kind of have a mild cold, you're not going to go into the VA system and report yourself. You're going to take some Advil and stay home. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the, the mild reinfections, which are which are very common with COVID-19, were not captured. There are a group of people who are at risk for severe reinfection. Those are usually those over 80 with five comorbidities. Those on immunosuppressants are those with chronic kidney disease. And where did I get those four risk factors? From a large Lancet, 30 million person study, way bigger than this, uh, published in the Lancet from the UK that showed those are still the risk groups, the groups that are still at risk for severe disease, even after two doses of the vaccine. It is those groups we have to protect the most. They need boosters, they need Paxlovid, and they need to be watched for ensuring they don't get severely infection. But you had a mild reinfection, it wasn't captured in the state.
0: The The authors also noted that their participants were mostly white men, which is another you know, limitation, although I'm not sure how significant that is compared to the other limitations that you've described. Why do you think this study then gets so much more attention than the ones that you cited? And this has to do with, uh, you know, our, our COVID communication, right? Like, it does seem as though people still feel pretty, well, there is a cohort of people that are still extremely concerned about this disease. Uh, that are pointing to this study and pointing to another recent study that showed a surge of nearly 900,000 people with disabilities in the U.S. workforce uh, that attributed that surge mostly to long COVID. So they're pointing to these studies and saying we are being told to go about and live our lives as normal, but this disease is still dangerous and our government is letting us down. And I wonder, you know, if you think that they are correct, if you think that Uh, They are misguided, but that, you know, they they, our communications about this disease have really let us down because people in the United States, you know, almost three years into this pandemic, we are not on the same page. And so
7: I I wanted to ask your thoughts about that. It's actually this is a very, very good question because um, it does seem to be a very uniquely uh, uh, American trait of the media to sort of amplify bad news. And there was a study that was performed in September 2020 that looked at this, that, it's, it, that other um, media, international media, especially Europe and the UK, tended to follow the medical literature and also assess the limitations when there's a study that was methodologically flawed and put out kind of sober, clean data. And there was, this was covered in the New York Times actually in other papers, but there seems to be a clickbait or a bad news bias or putting out sensational headlines or putting out studies that are scary without kind of a sober, again, data-based methodologic look at the study. Um, If you look at platforms like Twitter, about three quarters of scientists are describing the problems with this study. And then there is... um, you know, a certain group that is amplifying the fear. And it's just not how immunology works. Boy, if, if immunology didn't work, we would have been eliminated as a species, um, you know, many, many uh, generations ago. So, immunology generally works such that a, a reinfection actually expands your immune uh, system and immune, expands your immunity to the virus. And in fact, multiple other studies, not just the 26 studies that I told you about, but other studies uh, that look at hybrid immunity, there was just one in the New England Journal last week shows that if you have had two vaccines and an infection, your risk of getting a severe reinfection is extremely low. So it's, it's. I think it has to do with media bias, clickbait, online, kind of what gets clicks. I actually just wrote a book on this, to be honest, hmm. um, uh, called Endemic for, for Mayo Clinic Press. And it goes over a lot of the biases that were very particular to American media during the pandemic. And I don't think I know all the reasons why. Um, one thing is that I wrote a piece for Medscape that really went over the data and immunocompromised populations of how well these vaccines work. They work so well. Why? Because actually other vaccines before the mRNA technology would give you a piece of protein and you'd raise immune response to it. But here you get what's called mRNA. You make a large amount of the spike protein, and you raise a very robust immune response. These are amazing vaccines. And because of that, there have been study after study in those with immunocompromised, and I treat an immunocompromised population, that these vaccines work very well. Mm-hmm. And no, we don't have a lot of people that are still at severe at risk of severe COVID. There's still, again, the patient population groups that are at risk for severe COVID are the population groups described in that Lancet UK study. Everyone can just go to Google say Lancet, 30 million, UK COVID. And it is a very clean analysis across a 30 million people about who's at risk still for severe infection, over 80, five comorbidities, um, having chronic kidney disease and being on immunosuppressants. We absolutely know how to protect these patients. They need boosters. They need frequent boosters, at least yearly, maybe every six months. And they need Paxlovid on hand if they get infected.
0: So it sounds like the media is is treating covid uh, like they treat crime, for example, where, you know, there's an unwillingness to look at or inability or unwillingness to look at a larger context. Do you sort of take the take the word of people who uh, perhaps either are putting things on clearly or have a vested interest in making it appear that there is more crime and sort of hyping something up politically only to drop it later on? And so I wonder, I mean, you know, the mainstream media is the vehicle we have to convey information to the population. And so I wonder, you know, what you what you think people should do to try to have a better understanding of what of what reality is. Right. So including sort of looking around you to see whether you're seeing changes in your community or your society, Um I don't know, trying to, I mean, because of course the, the whole message throughout the pandemic was like, oh, you got to look at the peer reviewed journals, look at the peer reviewed journals. Well, the nature is a peer reviewed journal. So what is, what
7: is your recommendation? No, it's a, it's actually a fascinating question that you're asking because I never, I never thought about it in comparison to other um, media amplified fears. I will say that What I would really recommend is it's infectious disease doctors, ICU doctors, hospitalists on the ground that are seeing the changes in the pandemic over these last three years that really are the people to trust. You have to talk to someone who who is actually in a hospital setting like I am watching patients and in terms of how little severe disease we've had in the hospital since population immunity has risen both from vaccination and from natural infection. And if you look at every other country, Denmark, UK, Germany, Italy, they put out clean data. And does the societies act like the pandemic is now in the endemic phase? Yes, they do, they do. They have released mass mandates, they've kind of gone back to normal. And here in our society, we're very fractured. Some states have gone back to normal, some states are still raising the fear. But talk to people, and, you know, they're on Twitter. I mean, you, you, there are many um, ID doctors on Twitter who are just tweeting out very calmly um, what's going on in the hospital setting, that we're at the stage in this pandemic where we have so much population immunity that we're doing really well. And um, there are low rates of severe disease in the hospital. And it was terrible in 2020. That never means that it, this was not real. It was very, very real. But there was no population immunity at that time. And three years later, there is high levels of population immunity. This is what was to be expected. This is how pandemics go. Um, it will eventually get better. And it will eventually get better only because of immunity, because of our immune response is geared towards fighting the virus now, hopefully from vaccination, but also from natural immunity.
0: I wonder, and apologies for sort of maybe going a little bit farther afield on this, but you did say you you recently wrote a book sort of about about these issues. And I wonder, you know, what do you think what do you think is driving uh, the continued, extremely heightened fear about this disease? If, as you say, it's really not warranted. Uh, You know, I think there was it was a big psychological trauma uh, to people, I think, being the lockdowns, however, uh, relatively not restrictive they were here. And this idea that you couldn't tell where I just wonder why you think this idea remains uh, remains fixated and, and what it'll take for people to let go of it.
7: Well, I think it's a great question. I think if anyone travels or goes to other places in the world, um, you immediately get a sense that uh, it's it's in the United States where there's still a, a strong holding on to the fear. Um, and so that's one thing is to travel or to talk to people in other places. Um, the second is why do I think that this happened uniquely in the United States? Um, one thing is that there's this kind of narrative by some scientists saying this is, we still don't know enough about this coronavirus. We actually know more about this virus than we probably know about any other infection. Why? Because the whole world turned its attention to it. We're in a state of great scientific progress. And we had in the first year of the pandemic alone, 87,000 papers published on COVID. Um, Now we're in this year of the pandemic, we have had more than 300,000 papers Published on COVID. What does that mean? It means what the WHO has described as an infodemic. We have so much information coming out about this one virus that poorly poorly done studies can sometimes be amplified. And then that's kind of brought up with the fear. And there's not this kind of clean, sober, sober data based approach looking at the virus and what's going on. So I think look at any other country. That's one helpful way to get away from the noise here. And then what I wrote this book about is it was. Um, It's kind of on basic immunology, and we've known coronaviruses before. We can't say this is a novel virus. We've had six coronaviruses circulating in humans prior to this, four that caused the common cold, then one called SARS, which did cause a pandemic in 2003, and then it went away, and then MERS, which caused a small pandemic in 2011. So this is not a novel out of the blue virus. It's a straightforward coronavirus. We know what they do. We know what immunity does, and I would say to cut through that noise. Um, I guess you could read the book. <laughs> it's, it's on immunology, um, and it's it's called endemic. But it's it's um, it's really about basic tenets of immunology and virology, and why did some people amplify this and get fearful? And they may not even have domain expertise in in virology or immunology. I can't explain that, but some of it was political. Some of it was um, Trump didn't um, take the virus. Seriously enough, so there was a overcompensation on the other side, um, taking it so seriously that you amplify poor studies. Um, I don't, I can't, I I did. It's not a political book, so I can't explain it. It's a, it's a simple book explaining immunology, virology, and and that we know a lot about this virus. Mm
0: Dr. Monica Gandhi, uh, one, I'm delighted to hear that I can go back to not being very worried about COVID anymore, okay. and also, honestly, I would like you to, yeah. if we could get Americans to uh, look seriously at other countries and travel to other countries, I think we would be doing a lot better uh, across a spectrum of, of issues. What so. you just
7: said is the key point. It's not like the entire world is crazy and we're the smart ones, right? Like mm-hmm. the entire world has understood the immunology, virology, this virus. And them being back to normal is not because they're being insincere with their populations. They they understand the data.
0: Yep. Look at the rest of the world once in a while, Americans. It's a great message. That was Dr. Monica Gandhi. She's director of the UCSF Gladstone Center for AIDS Research. She's a physician. She's a professor of medicine. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Man, John, I'm so relieved. That's good. <laughs> I was like, oh wow, have I have I missed something really serious of people dropping like flies around us? Nope. Okay, great. I good. was delighted to hear that news. Um, there was a story that we didn't get to talk about earlier in the show that I, I thought was worth mentioning, and that is Greg Abbott mm-hmm. uh coming out, trying to also get in on the uh the the Republican attention oh, yeah. you know, Pence Trump ball game. So uh Greg Abbott. Yesterday, I believe, uh, tweeted that he was invoking the invasion clauses of the U.S. and Texas constitutions to authorize Texas to take unprecedented measures to defend the state against an invasion. What he is referring to, of course, is migration. That's right. Which is a truly disgusting way, I think, to refer to
1: people trying
0: to cross the border, even. You know what I mean? It's like.
1: I can't imagine any court, any federal court in America is going to let him get away with this.
0: It is pretty foul. The other thing, though, um, so so he says this, he says um, he is using that authority and his other, you know, uh, authority given to him by his role to do things like deploy the National Guard to the border uh, to deploy basically Texas cops. To arrest and return to the border anyone crossing illegally, to build a wall in multiple Texas counties on the border, deploy gunboats, designate drug cartels as foreign terrorist organizations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he makes all of these um, pretty wild promises. Mm -hmm. However, he doesn't seem to be doing anything about them. No. It seems because he's all talk. Yes, exactly. It does seem to be all talk. And in fact, uh, his uh, budget director, Sarah Hicks, said in response to a question about this tweet, "Uh, I don't think it's a change in overall tactic as much as a reminder to all of us that this is serious and it demands a full and serious response. I guess like Mm -hmm. the one that Greg Abbott just detailed there, but does not intend to deploy.
1: Yeah. You know, one other thing to remember, too, is that Texas, the structure of the Texas government is very, very unusual. It's I it's unlike any other American state where the the governor actually has almost no authority. It's the lieutenant governor that actually runs the day to day operations of the state. Crazy, right? What? Yeah. Yeah. So Abbott is pretty much a figurehead. He doesn't really have the authority to do anything of any consequence or import. And like I said, he can invoke whatever tenant of the of the Texas Constitution he wants. It's not up to him to decide that the U.S. Constitution gives him the authority to declare an invasion of Texas.
0: It does seem like it is possible. I mean, this is perhaps wishful thinking, but I am looking at a, uh, a right wing outlet reporting on this, that it seems like perhaps with this, Abbott has both turned off people who don't think you should call migrants uh, invading right. forces, right? but also turned off people who do want to see Uh, draconian measures imposed at the border. Uh, This fellow who is apparently the executive director at the Center for Renewing America. Never heard of it. Chilling name. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But he called Abbott's move a giant head pat to his base, relabeling already failed policies. There you go. The Abbott's getting himself now attacked from the right on the border.
1: Yeah. Best of luck with that. That
0: would be pretty interesting. Uh, I mean, that would be a great pincher move I would like to see happen to this uh, nasty fellow.
1: Did you happen to see the announcement from the White House this morning? that uh, starting next week, we're going to begin deporting Cubans. Cubans. Wow. From Florida. Talk about a slap across the face. The
0: only people they could start deporting that would be more, uh, you know, more of the sort of sacred cow would be Ukrainians. We're going to start deporting Ukrainians across the border illegally now? Right. I did not
1: see that. Yeah, I saw it just as we were coming into the studio. I So, you you know, the Republicans want to fight undocumented uh, migration? Okay. Let's start filling up some planes, and it specifically said that they would be returned to Cuba by plane.
0: What? Uh
1: huh. Yeah.
0: Taking them to Guantanamo. This is no. a
1: slap against uh, against the Republican Party. Cubans tend to be Republicans once they become well, sure, Americans. Started, and,
0: I mean, it was Venezuelans before, right? That's Where it's right. Like, well, which is it? That's which right. is it, guys? Is this a a, a, a nation? racked by humanitarian crises that, of course, are not our fault at all. And everyone deserves to come over here because everyone's a political, uh, you know, everyone is seeking legitimate political asylum if you come from the land of Maduro. That's right. And now to Cuba. Mm, That's interesting. Um, I also saw today that a federal judge has put on hold his ruling that struck down the Title 42 immigration policy. Yes. So— He he was granting the Biden administration's request for a stay with great reluctance. And so now we have until midnight on December 21st, I guess, to actually figure out whether Title 42 can and will continue to be applied at the border, what the Biden administration has the authority to do.
1: You know, one of the things that I think the Republicans are right about is that this administration doesn't seem to have an overall plan for migration. You know, there's no, I mean. There's a little bit left over from Trump and a little bit left over from Obama, and we just don't know, whether it's from Joe Biden or Alejandro Mayorkas, what exactly the plan is. I
0: mean, Biden campaigned against Trump's sort of inhumanity mm-hmm. and inhumane treatment to people yes. at the border, but has been fighting in court since he took office to protect the ability to use tools like Title 42, and not just, you know, as, as their defenders would say, oh, well, it's... The, DOJ has to protect its own authority. That's why it goes to court in these cases. But to actually try to use it, you know, they want to continue to use this yes. public health authority That's right. to uh, deport people who they otherwise would not be uh, allowed to deport because they'd be allowed to come in and make their cases for asylum. Uh, as again, as we were just talking about, we are no longer in a public health emergency. That's right. And so, yeah, it does go to show how, how absolutely dishonest. This administration has been with regard to immigration and, yeah, how it, it doesn't know how to deal with this crisis. I mean, I don't I don't think you can deny there are quite a few people attempting to to cross into the United States mm-hmm. uh, illegally. Mm-hmm. Why is that happening then? Right. You know, and nobody ever nobody wants to actually Plus, get into that. Wasn't
1: this. the plan from 20 and 25 years ago that we wanted to help develop the economies of the Central American? That's always uh, what we say our plan yeah. is. OK, so then why haven't we done anything?
0: Because it's not in our interest to have them be, you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's in our interest to maintain people in precarious yes. states. Yes, it is. So they can continue to be exploited. And what we're all trying to do, and they're trying to do this in Europe as well, just build bigger walls. Yeah. Uh, you know, milita- militarize the Mediterranean Sea, militarize your oceans, refuse to let people dock, watch people watch people drown, Yep. and continue to implement the policies that have set these events in
1: motion. That's right. It is
0: pretty grim. And we didn't even get to mention... John Ossoff's uh, look into yeah. the conditions for women in these ICE detention centers. God bless John
1: Ossoff. We're going to talk about that, well, tomorrow or the day after, but there, there's a lot of uh, important stuff uh, on that issue.
0: Yeah, there is. Oh, maybe we'll tell you about the uh, Adder. How many people are taking Adderall in the United States? <laughs> that is a wild number. We'll tell you that tomorrow. <laughs> That's all we got time for today. Uh, on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Whitty, thanks to you for listening.